and they jumped in the apartment pool and they were playing a game that probably a lot of us grew up playing where you would you throw the pennies in the pool and the pennies would roll down to the main drain and this main drain uh, was missing. The drain cover had been missing according to witnesses in the case for a period of several years. And um, Lorenzo would reach his hand into the main drain and it became stuck. And uh, Tony Boudreau tried to pull his friend out, could not pull him. Um, I'll never forget that Tony came to the top of the surface of that pool and he screamed in a group of Mayflower movers, three guys, big guys, moving in an apartment complex, saw what was happening. They came down, they jumped in, and they, along with Tony, four, four people tried to pull him out of the drain and could not. A police officer showed up, jumped in the water, did not, could not get him out, cut a hose so that he could try to get air, blow air to Lorenzo to keep Lorenzo alive as they tried to figure out what's going on. Um, all, all four of those people were traumatized forever by what they saw with Lorenzo's eyes, the fear, the absolute terror of knowing that he was going to run out of oxygen. And, um, and finally, that officer uh, broke into the pool pump door and turned off the pool pump, which released Lorenzo, and he suffered a catastrophic uh, noxic brain injury due to the loss of oxygen to his brain. You are listening to On Premises, a podcast where you go behind the scenes and beyond the news articles, hearing directly from the nation's leading civil trial lawyers about their clients' most impactful premises liability cases. I'm your host, Landon Stinson, trial attorney at Beacon Legal in Gainesville, Florida. Michael Haggard is a trial attorney and managing partner for the Haggard Law Firm in Coral Gables, Florida. Michael is a nationally renowned trial lawyer who has handled landmark premises liability trials. In the courtroom, Michael has secured three separate $100 million verdicts on behalf of individual clients, as well as countless other dazzling jury verdicts for victims of negligence and their families. But Michael's passion for justice and equity does not stop at the courtroom doors. Michael has been a change agent for improving safety legislation at the local, state, and federal level. Michael is former president of the Florida Justice Association and is a past recipient of the FJA Perry Nichols Award, the Advocate for Justice Award from the National Crime Victims Bar Association, and countless other awards and accolades for his work in the courtroom and the community. Michael is not only a trial lawyer and philanthropist, but also a dedicated father. He enjoys spending time with his wife, Becky, and his two children. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. We are here on the podcast today to go on premises with you and your clients to two distinct Florida swimming pools where two children suffered horrific non-fatal drownings. You helped both of these children obtain jury verdicts of $104 million and $100 million, respectively. But before we go into their stories, can you tell us your story and why you decided to become a trial lawyer in the first place? Sure. Thank you so much for having me. Um, it really it all starts with my father. My dad, uh, Andy Haggard, uh, was a phenomenal trial lawyer and retired a couple years ago. And I grew up hearing the stories of his clients at the dinner table. And 
you know, when I uh, worked at the firm during the summers, you know, you do all the the grunt work of filing and different things that lawyers' kids do. But I would go watch not only my father try cases, but legends like J.B. Spence and Bill mm-hmm. Frady's and, and others like that try cases. So really, I saw the advocacy, number one, and then I saw how my dad helped people who were at the worst moment of their lives. And so that really inspired me at a young age. And did you go to law school right after college? I did. You know, you know it's funny. In, in, in college, I kind of didn't really know what I wanted to do, except I wanted to influence people. I was in a couple leadership positions at Florida State University in undergrad, and, and I liked public speaking. Um, but I, but I, you know, was thinking about maybe doing some other things. And then I, you know, just kind of again over a summer saw my father in trial uh, in a very, very difficult case. It just inspired me that being a trial lawyer is something that that you know was in my blood and that I really should do. Do you remember what case that was? I, I do. It, it was a uh, it was a terrible automobile accident case where a family lost both their father and their mother in one in one brutal car accident. And just the way my dad talked about family, um, you know, just kind of showed me, you know, how one family could could help another and how special that could be across a lifetime. Mm. I'm sure that was extra meaningful hearing that from your father in a courtroom. And what was your major at Florida State, Michael? So I was a communications major, which is kind of, you know, where I learned, you know, I had a professor that I probably had three different classes, public speaking, nonverbal communication, and those types of things. And and it's interesting because you always you hear lawyers to be English majors so they can learn to write or you know, be a political science major. And and what I loved about that is in learning about nonverbal communication, I learned early on things that I, I've used to this day in jury selection uh, and, and seeing jurors that may not be talking, but how are they reacting to certain issues and witnesses as well. So I always hark back to that particular class and that professor, uh, Mark Ziegler, who really kind of gave me the framework about about speaking and, and influencing people, but also listening, which is such an important part of communication and in trying cases, ultimately. What's one, I guess, two questions. Number one, what's one positive piece of advice you'd have for lawyers who want to improve their public speaking skills? And then number two, what's one common mistake you see lawyers making uh, when they're when they're speaking in the courtroom? Well, I think the biggest thing I would say to any, anybody is you got to be yourself. You know, I mean, I've watched J.B. Spence try cases. I, I've seen... You know, uh, Chris Searcy, I've seen so many, you know, Willie Gary. I've seen Willie Gary give an opening when I was in law school, I believe. I, ca- I can't be Willie Gary. I can't be Chris Searcy. I can't be Andy Haggard. I can only be myself. And everybody, I think, really needs to find that that true voice that's theirs, whether it involves some humor, whether it whether it doesn't, what type of emotion. How, how do you speak to people when you speak to people about something important? And the biggest mm-hmm. mistake I think I see is I see people become too married to their notes. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, when you when you really believe there's nothing wrong, preparation is the key to everything. But at some point, you know it and you've got to trust it. And I see young lawyers sometimes way too tied to their notes where if you took those notes away, they would be just fine. It's just they don't have that confidence yet. So those are the two things I would say. So you, you major in communications at, at Florida State. And then where do you go into law school? I went to the University of Miami Law School. Okay. 
And when you're at University of Miami Law School, did you know that you wanted to be a trial lawyer? Yeah, I think, I think there's no question. You know, I, I um I went to the University of Miami because I kind of knew I wanted to live in South Florida. And I figured, you know, each summer and during school I would clerk at uh at different law firms and and, and you know get to know the legal community, even though I kind of grew up in it. Um but, you know, I, I interned at the public defender's office my last semester in a certified legal internship. And I was able to try uh, six cases, you know, basically on my own, be lead counsel with with obviously a public defender. And I just love being in the courtroom more than life itself. In fact, I I skipped my third year bankruptcy class, never went to a class. And uh, I'll never forget, <laughs> I sat down with that bankruptcy professor and said, I'm going to fail this class. Because I'm I'm in court every afternoon, and the bankruptcy professor asked me, "Do you think you'll ever be a business lawyer or a bankruptcy lawyer?" I said, "Absolutely not." He said, "I'd like to take this pass fail, but you got to bring me each verdict form." So literally, probably five to seven years into my practice, I would be sending him verdict forms. To which he finally replied, "Hey, buddy, you don't need to send me any verdict forms." <laughs> anymore he said but i'll take a referral fee on that last one so uh so it's always funny but it kind of always reminds me I, I knew what i wanted to do and and i and i when i uh, graduated from law school the greatest thing i ever did was start at the public defender's office mm. a lot of people including myself weren't blessed right away with with knowing exactly what they want to do so what was it about being in the courtroom that you loved yeah, you know, it's funny. I mean, I, you know, when I think back to college, you know, and, and even law school, I, I knew I wanted to make a difference. I knew I wanted to do it with debate skills, but being in the courtroom, you can watch it, but until you do it, I think that's when you fall in love. And when I was an assistant public defender, being both an intern and then being, being an assistant public defender, it's just, it is the absolute arena. I mean, it is where people cannot resolve disputes where we're, you know, one of three countries in the world where civil disputes are decided by juries. Um, but it, it is the most incredible, powerful thing to let citizens decide this issue, not judges, not arbitration panels, not politicians, not the powerful, but regular citizens make these incredibly important decisions, whether it's for someone's liberty or in the cases I I handle in a catastrophic, you know, injury case where you're talking about the future of someone's life being decided by six strangers that were selected through this incredible process, and I fell in love with it from the outset. I mean, at the at the PD's office, I was known as I don't know if I can use this language on your podcast, but I was known as the trial. You know, I won't use the word, but I would run around <laughs> in the afternoon and I would beg anyone. You know, if they had a trial, could I either jump in on it or could I take it over? Uh, because I just love being in trial so much. So I did that for just a great two years. I loved it. Some people are terrified of trial. Were you ever scared of handling a trial or is it just always fun for you? You know, it, look, I, I'd be lying if I said I didn't, you know, go into to Monday morning to pick a jury or that that weekend getting ready beforehand that you don't have tremendous anxiety and butterflies. And I think if I ever didn't have that, it's time to hang it up because, mm. you know, it reminds me of playing sports in high school. I and mean, every time I got up to bat, no matter, I could have 
literally emptied my bladder and had an ultrasound, I still felt the urge to to have to pee when I get up to bat. <laughs> I always use that example because it's butterflies. Mm-hmm. It has nothing. It has to do with you being excited. And I still have that to this day. I was in trial two weeks ago, and I and I had that feeling. But at the same time, it's it, it's real. It's nothing to do with scared. It's just to do with excited and, and that that feeling. Um, you know, and 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 I always joke. I mean, the greatest day in the world for a trial lawyer is you're driving to the courthouse to give your closing argument because everything's been done. Everything's mm-hmm. in evidence. Every problem that could happen and that you had to get over has been accomplished. And now it's it's really reaching the summit of a beautiful mountain. And now you just get to enjoy and do your thing. And, 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 and trials always been that way for me from my first case I ever tried to two weeks ago, that it's a, it's filled with butterflies, anxiety, excitement, and, and just exhilaration waiting for the jury's verdict. Maybe some lawyers will be listening to you say this in the car on the way to their closing arguments. It sounds like a, an important moment. So you're, go to high school, you go to college at Florida State, you go to law school at University of Miami, and then you go to the public defender's office down in Miami. And then how long are you at the PD's office? I was there about two years. Um, and uh, and then I had been talking on and off with, with an incredible lawyer, one of my really three mentors in my career, uh, Don Russo, who uh, was a solo practitioner. You know, you know, once in a while I would have an associate uh, doing high-end medical malpractice and catastrophic injury. And Don Russo had been a, a friend of my father's, a longtime trial lawyer in Miami, played football at the University of Miami. He was from um, Salem, Virginia. And I went mm-hmm. to work with Don when I left the public defender's office. And how long did you work with Don? I worked with Don for a year, just an incredible year that I wouldn't trade for anything. It was brutally tough. If anybody's listening out there that uh, worked for Don or, or, or knew Don Russo. <laughs> he was one of the most intense trial lawyers anybody has ever known. Um, preparation, preparation, preparation. He taught me how to prepare a case, how to prepare witnesses, how to prepare your plaintiff, your client. Um, and uh, But it was seven days a week. Um, you know, it was intense. And, um, you know, what happened was I – you know, went to lunch with Bob Parks, who's another one of my mentors, who was my dad's partner at the time. And Bob just kind of said to me, why aren't you pressing with the firm? And, you know, I wanted to make a name for myself. And I started to bring in a lot of business. And so Bob's point was, why are we competing? You know, you've made a name for yourself. Come on over here. Let's do all this together. And you'll work for me rather than work under your dad, you know, just because of the nepotism issues that can happen. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it was kind of time time to come home and do that. And what year is this when you when you come home to the firm? You know that would have been probably the beginning of 1998. Okay, so yeah. 1998, and this is the same firm that you're with today, and your managing partner, correct? Yeah, at the time it was uh, Haggard Parks, so my dad, and and Bob Parks, who Bob I clerked for in law school, uh, known forever. Another just legendary, phenomenal trial lawyer. Um, uh, one of, you know, my three mentors are Don Russo, Bob Parks, and obviously my father and, and, uh, and, and yeah, no, it was a thrill to come practice with those two legends, my dad and Bob. Okay. And of course you handle a variety of cases. I saw, I think you're talking about the trial two weeks ago. You got a $3.5 million verdict for the survivor of a car crash. 
your firm obtains jaw-dropping eight-figure verdicts in medical malpractice cases and product defect cases, just for example. But when it comes to specialization, I feel like the Haggard Law Firm is the authority, the experts, the go-to on negligent security and drowning cases. Do you agree with that? And if so, how did that happen? Yeah, you know, I would agree with that in the sense that, you know, having a national practice and and I'm involved in a lot of organizations of trial lawyers across the United States, you know, we we do more negligent security cases and drowning cases than probably anybody. Um, And and that's that's for a couple of reasons. I mean, number one, you're talking about negligent security first. We started really doing them a lot more uh, than most people back in the 2000s. And then what really happened for negligent security was the Sammy Barak case. Uh, We tried a very difficult quadriplegic case where a young man by the name of Sammy Barak was shot and rendered quadriplegic. And we obtained a a $100 million verdict in the case. And, And right after that, we were flooded with negligent security referrals. Hmm. And I can tell you that happened very, really because of that case. Um, what year was that case? That, that was tried in 2007. Okay. And and so really since then, you know, we, we've been handling so many of them, but one thing that we try to do, which I think is a little unique, is we really try to, to get involved in, okay, how do we cure this problem? Um, you know, I often tell people, I mean, the whole point of the civil justice system is to make society safer and and maybe even cure the problem that you're dealing with. I mean, you know, we had exploding pintos back in the 70s, Ford pintos that when they were rear-ended because of the design of the gasoline tank, they would explode. And because of the cases that were handled by different lawyers across the country, that never was going to happen again. And um, And so in security cases... You know, I've been able to speak at national conferences dealing with, uh, you know, the top security uh, industry in the world. Global Security Exchange has a conference every year that I speak at. And and Todd's been uh, Todd Michaels, my partner, has been speaking there as well, where we'll talk to the different industry leaders about what they can do in terms of security to stop these things from happening. So we don't just talk to lawyers. We, we try to go talk to industry about fixing this. And what happens with that then is is you kind of are labeled an expert in the area. And, and unfortunately, when there's a mass shooting, which is every day in this country, um, um, I get called and do national interviews on, you know, how do we stop mass shootings? How do we stop it? Not only from a from a gun control standpoint, but from a security control standpoint. So that tends to not only do you continue to get referrals based on that, but obviously the insurance industry knows you industry knows you, apartments, the hotels know you. So it, it can help in getting cases resolved uh, and those kind of things. And so that's kind of how that niche was created. Um, and drowning along maybe a little bit of a different, you know, the two cases I know you and I are going to talk about, the Peterson and Hinton cases, they gained a lot of notoriety. And then you continue to work on those type cases and other lawyers, not only in Florida, but I've handled drowning cases all over the country. And, um, you know, you start getting involved in, in legislation and the development of codes. And and uh, I'm on the board of the National Drowning Prevention Alliance. And, and uh, so uh, you're just you're really engrossed in 
the the prevention efforts on these issues, mm-hmm. which you know is what you want to do because I I don't want to ever ever sit across from another family that lost a child due to drowning or that lost a child due to gun violence. Um, mm. And, you know, we can do something about both, uh, not only in the courtroom, but beyond there as well. Mm. Yeah, it's it's reminding me of maybe a, a, a cancer doctor who both tries to treat cancer in the individual, but then also try to come up with solutions for cancer on a systemic level. You're both trying to compensate your your client and their family for this one wrong that has occurred, this injustice, this catastrophic injury. But then on a systemic level, you're trying to enact change that makes sure that this doesn't happen to other folks in the future. Am I understanding yeah. that correctly? Oh, 100%. I and mean, I tell everybody I'd do anything to put myself out of business. Uh, not with not with stupid legislation like tort reform, which only makes the world dangerous. I'd like to prevent drowning and never handle another drowning case again because we've cured the problem. And the same with gun violence. I mean, you don't have to look further than what's happened in the last week in Serbia, who had two mm. mass shootings and what they've done to to with gun control. And I would do anything if the United States would do that. And then apartment complexes could be safe. Premiums would go down. No one gets, no one's shot and injured, and I'll, I'll I can uh, handle other cases or do something else. That'd be fine with me uh, because there's just too much. I mean, the tragedy that I deal with on a daily basis is is something to behold. You are former president of the Florida Justice Association or FJA. Florida premises liability law has significantly changed through the recent Florida legislative session. We don't have to go into all the finite details, of course, but for our listeners who may not know what just happened here in Florida and our legislature, can you fill us in, please? Yeah, yeah. You know, that this is, again, legislation that's going to do nothing to uh, curb violence. Um, both of the uh, the bills that passed, or t- you know, the two issues are now in a negligent security case, the apartment complex or the shopping mall that has been found to be negligent, found to be negligent by a jury, gets a get-out-of-jail-free card because then they can just say, well, you know, it was the shooter who did this. The shooter shot somebody and killed him in the parking lot, so put the blame on them and reduce the crime victim's recovery. And so the problem with that is, number one, how does that make any apartment complex want to be safer? How does it make them enact, you know, actual security measures or any mall or any bar or any premises we could think of. Uh, and then on the, on the second thing that they did was, was they gave uh, what we call a presumption of no negligence to apartment complex that enact silly security procedures like lights, um, a, a uh, deadbolt lock, um, and some other things that make no sense. And, you know, while I, I truthfully think this is not going to affect our practice at our firm, because we are so committed to these crime victims that we we already we've already argued against these things in other states, and we've been successful. Um, but the problem is that we don't get every case, we don't handle every case, and there's lawyers who who haven't done this for 25 years that are going to uh, be overcome with these problems. And the problem is that those victims, those crime victims, the most vulnerable in our society are going to be taken advantage of by insurance companies 
and by uh, and by industry. And so that that is a real shame. And the and the biggest shame society wise is our state's going to get a lot more dangerous. I mean, at the same time that they passed the this tort reform, they also um, passed open carry. And you don't have to have a concealed weapons permit. You don't have to have any type of permit to carry a gun in the state of Florida. So the state of Florida spike in violence is going to be monumental uh, and crime victims are going to have less rights. So it's it's terrible legislation uh, and everybody needs to be aware of it and and who voted for it, to be honest with you. Yeah. And forgive, you know, I'm. Why do these laws pass, Michael? I mean, it sounds like they don't benefit victims of crime. Sounds like they don't make Florida more safe. So. How do laws like this get passed? Yeah, well, unfortunately, insurance companies are incredibly greedy, as is uh, industry. You know, this in this particular sense, I mean, the insurance companies, all you have to look through the property legislation, this legislation, the rest of the tort reform package. I mean, the insurance companies absolutely hit the golden goose. And I would say to every citizen in Florida, if you don't have premiums reduced, after they did this, you will never, ever see your premiums get reduced. So it's a matter of greed. And unfortunately, um, a big player this year was the apartment industry, developers, contractors who um, are, are, given, are being given a billion dollars in public money to build apartment complexes this year, an absolute bailout giveaway, and are getting protections at the same time. And, and the problem is, you know, right now we have a legislature that uh, is, is you know, truthfully bought off with political contributions. The insurance industry is the biggest giver to the legislature, uh, with uh, corporate America being number two, or, or they're 1A and 1B. And uh, the only people out there fighting them right now are, are you know, the Florida Justice Association uh, and uh, and our ally groups. And so it's it's a very tough battle. Um you know, and this was kind of a trifecta with everything going on with the governor and running for president and all these kind of things. Hopefully we won't see something like this again. But it's something that citizens uh, need to really pay attention to. And I, and I they're going to have to because the property insurance mess is going to be at everybody's doorstep. And I want and everyone listening to this may not know how just how hard you, your law firm, uh, Todd Michaels, others at FJA fought and um, donated and spent your time and, and testified against these evil laws. And so I just want to say thank you from, from myself for how hard you all fought against this. And I know I'm, I'm encouraged that you are so committed to these crime victims that you're not going to let this legislation get in the way of them getting the justice they're deserved. So I um, appreciate you sharing that. We're here today to discuss two jury trials that you prosecuted on behalf of your clients. Uh, one resulted in a verdict of $104 million, the other in a verdict of $100 million. The crazy part is both trials, if I'm not mistaken, were just months apart. The first was in March 2003, and the second was in July 2003. If you want, Michael, let's start with the second trial, Peterson versus Starite Industries, $104 million verdict. Two questions to start. First, 
who is Lorenzo Peterson? And second, can you take us with you on premises where this horrific tragedy unfolds and tell us Lorenzo's story? Sure. Um, yeah, it's amazing. Those trials were 20 years ago. I, I can't, I can't believe that. Um, but Lorenzo was a 14 year old uh, boy who, who grew up in North Miami. Um, just a fantastic kid, an athlete, a great student, um, you know, and, and, and a kid who, you know, on a, on a summer day, uh, like a lot of kids are going to do this summer running around the neighborhood, you know, and, and went into an apartment complex that his best friend, another 14 year old kid by the name of Tony Boudreau, uh, they were hanging out. It was hot as it is today, probably that day. And, um, and they jumped in the apartment pool and they were playing a game that probably a lot of us grew up playing where you would, you would throw the pennies in the pool and the pennies would roll down to the main drain. And this main drain uh, was missing. The drain cover had been missing, according to witnesses in the case, for a period of several years. Hmm. And um, Lorenzo would reach his hand into the main drain and it became stuck. And uh, Tony Boudreau tried to pull his friend out, could not pull him. Um, I'll never forget that Tony came to the top of the surface of that pool and he screamed in a group of Mayflower movers, three guys, big guys moving in an apartment complex, saw what was happening. They came down, they jumped in and they, along with Tony, four, four people tried to pull him out of the drain and could not. Mm. A police officer showed up, jumped in the water, could not, could not get him out, cut a hose so that he could try to get air, blow air to Lorenzo to keep Lorenzo alive as they tried to figure out what was going on. Um, all, all four of those people were traumatized forever by what they saw with Lorenzo's eyes, the fear, the absolute terror of knowing that he was going to run out of oxygen. And, um, and finally, that officer uh, broke into the pool pump door and turned off the pool pump which released Lorenzo and he suffered a catastrophic uh, noxic brain injury due to the loss of oxygen to his brain. How do you come to represent Lorenzo Peterson and his parents? Yeah, so, you know, I, I was approached and, um, you know, looked at the case really from threefold. You know, when you get involved in a case like that, you know, I always tell lawyers, you, you've got to really sit back and, and analyze all the issues and use what's out there. I mean, 20 years ago, you know, it wasn't as easy to find out everything that had happened in those type incidents. Um but what we learned is that suction entrapment had been an issue for many years, for decades in the United States. There had been 2020s on it. Hmm. Um, Oprah Winfrey on her show back then had reported on it. Uh, it had been on a bunch of national news that there had been a number of circumstances where not only children but adults as well 
were being entrapped, being stuck on drains uh, that had a direct line to a pool pump. And, um, and, and, you know, quite simply, what was happening is when you cover up direct suction and you don't have another outlet for that suction to go to, the power of that from a mere one horsepower normal pool pump, um, you know, five people can't squat you off of it. I mean, that's that powerful, the pounds per square inch. And so we saw prior cases. We saw prior incidents. We got all these these different statistics, and we knew eventually our our target was going to be stay right industries. They had been a defendant uh, in a case that John Edwards, uh, you know, soon to be uh, United States Senator John Edwards, and and not only presidential but vice presidential candidate uh, with John Kerry in two thousand and four. Um, John Edwards had had a case by the name of Valerie Lakey, um, who was what we call eviscerated. She sat on a kiddie pool drain, mm. and literally her insides were pulled out. Oh, my gosh. And in that case, against Stay Right, due to the drain covers negligence, not the pump, they they got a verdict of $26 million. So I traveled to North Carolina. I met with John Edwards and his partner, David Kirby, reviewed their file, and what we did in that case was we knew the battle would be with, with stay right. That they did not settle cases, which was fine with us, but we had a viable case against the apartment complex owner who let the, um, the drain grate be uncovered for that many years. And also the, the pool cleaning company, the pool maintenance company who cleaned the pool twice a week, but it cleaned it with a missing drain cover. So what we did there was we filed the first lawsuit against those two entities and we were able to obtain their full policy limits of four million from the apartment complex owner and then three million from the pool maintenance company prior to filing the lawsuit against Stayright. And you know, we did that because we just didn't want a case with three defendants blaming each other. We we figured we were in a better position where Stayright was alone, looking at a timeline of 26 prior kids, hmm. kids that were either killed were catastrophically injured by their drain covers or their pumps without two defendants in the courtroom. They were able to fabricate them and blame them, but they weren't in the courtroom sitting there, and, and that proved to be a very uh, key strategic decision in that case. You said fabricate. For those listeners who don't know what that is, can you explain that real quick? Absolutely. So in Florida, a, a defendant can, uh, can blame non-parties. They can apportion fault to a non-party. So since we had settled with um, the two other defendants, um, they were, Stayright was not able to have them as defendants, but could blame them as non-parties to apportion a percentage of fault to them if the jury felt that was appropriate. And so we call that Fabre under the case law. And that came up in this recent legislative session where I believe the change was the negligent security cases, now the property owner can put the violent criminal as a fabricated defendant on the verdict form, whereas before they could not. Is that correct? Yeah, that's what, you know, the legislation is really poorly worded, but we think that was their intention. Okay. But but they didn't even write it right. Uh, but you're exactly right. And so, so yeah, that you know, and I can tell you both those uh, defendants, the apartment manager and the pool company president, they both testified. Um, I can't remember at this time whether I called them or whether the defense called them, but they did, both called them. And then it was my my role 
mine and Bob Parks, who I tried the case with, to then defend them. You know, say, and basically the argument about that at trial was, look, stay right knows drain covers come off. They know that these drain covers are missing and ill-maintained. That's the whole reason they needed a cutoff device on their pump that would have prevented this from happening. Because in all previous of those 26 incidents, either a drain cover became loose or it was it was uh, you know an ill-fitting drain cover or an improper drain cover in the first place. So that was how we were able to keep the percentages so low on the non-parties. Wow. So because you settled with the apartment complex owner and the pool management company, pool maintenance company for a total of seven million, their policy limits, when you did take stay right to trial, you had to defend the apartment complex owner and the pool company so the jury wouldn't apportion all the fault to those two companies who had already tendered their policy limits. Because if if the stay right was successful in apportioning 100% fault, for example, to those Fabre defendants, then your client could not recover anything. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you you know, you use the word defend. You, you know, obviously what you're doing is you're making the arguments – that of why it makes no sense, meaning stay right would never need a cutoff switch. And we'll talk about this a little bit with Hinton too, but stay right. If all drain covers work, there's no point to have a cutoff switch, but, but we know that they don't. And so you are kind of defending them, but you got to do it in a, in a proactive way. Um, and, and, you know, one way we did that was, uh, which is really interesting, you know, to think back 20 years, we ran a patent search. Hmm. You know, the whole issue with stay right was that, they knew there were cutoff switches out there. We found that in their internal documents. We found that in Consumer Product Safety Commission tests that were actually done testing the device that we said Stay Right could have had on their pump. And um, so we ran a patent check going back 100 years that these types of cutoff switches have been available. You can imagine hydraulic pumps, I mean, sewer systems, all these different devices that we take you know, for granted these easily could have been put on the pumps. You and I both know the reason why they didn't, because once they did that for a pump, what would they have to do? They'd have to recall and retrofit millions of pumps that were out there, as would the entire industry, not just stay right being the manufacturer in our case, but all the other pool pump manufacturers would know, hey, there's a readily safe alternative design that can save lives. What are we now going to do about it? And that was the reason they didn't do it. And, um, you know, and so that was pretty apparent to the jury because they could see the patents that were up there. And I'm talking, I'm, bring, I'm bringing up drawings of patents that were like black and white. I mean, <laughs> look like, you know, they were from 1908. And that's how simple that stuff was to to show to a jury. Although, you know, stay right in, you know, they lost the Edwards case and then they lost our case. And then since then, obviously, everything's been changed. Thank God. Yeah, and, and in no small part because of you and your team's work. So just to back up, Lorenzo Peterson, it, it's summertime when this uh, non-fatal drowning happens, right? Yes. Okay, so Lorenzo Peterson, you said he's 14 years old? He was, yes. Okay, so Lorenzo Peterson and his buddy are on summer vacation, I suppose. Yeah, they're just you know, they're doing what I did as a kid, I'm sure – people's children are doing right now in June of, of 2023, you know, just swimming in an apartment pool, having a great day, swimming, playing basketball, doing all the things we did before, you know, mom and dad, you know, 
back in the day would ring the bell or yell for you to come in or you need to be home. And nowadays, I guess they text you. Um, and they were swimming and, and just at the bottom of an apartment pool, the drain cover had been missing. And, and Lorenzo went to get that penny and put his hand in that, you know, that drain that, you know, obviously is there to clean the pool. And that's when he got stuck. And you have this, I mean, the scene, and I don't want to keep backtracking here, but just the scene to me is, is, um, I mean, it, it's nothing short of, of horrific. So he, this, this little boy is stuck at the bottom of the pool, his arm, how deep is his arm, Mike, in the, in the, um, the suction tube? You know, you know, just past his wrist. So, and, um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and that, and that was what was so terrifying. You can imagine, I mean, you've got three grown men, now a police officer, four, you know, I mean, bent their feet on the bottom of the pool, all lifting and tearing. I mean, just trying to tear him out of there. Mm. And you cannot do it because the extreme suction. You know, people think, wow, was it like a 100-horsepower pump? There's a one-horsepower pump. The pump is doing what it's intended to do. It's to drain the water from the pool. Uh, the problem is, is that you need alternative suction devices. Um, and, and what nowadays what happens is if you look in most pools, they'll have two main drains. And the sole reason you have two main drains is that because of this issue, it will diffuse suction to another and you don't get stuck. So that's one thing you can do. The other thing you can do is put a cutoff device on the pump, which is internally now manufactured. And the minute it senses any resistance, it turns off the pump. And Stayright's arguments to that, to not having that, was silly things like, well, you know, if you have leaves get stuck in there, then it's going to burn out the pump. And you're sitting there like, are you serious? You just said that when you've got someone like Lorenzo Peterson who can't eat, can't can't drink, can't speak, is stuck inside his body, you know, has to have 24 hour nursing care, and you're worried about leaves getting stuck in there. You know, and so none of their defenses made any sense in that case. So I'm just trying to wrap my mind around this. How how long was Lorenzo Peterson stuck to the bottom of the pool underwater? Yeah, you know, the, the, having it handled as many drowning cases in my life, it's amazing that that question you just asked is never properly answered. Mm. I mean, the estimates from witness, on the only time you can ever really look at it is when you have video. And we did not have video of Lorenzo's and since so the estimates were anywhere from you know eight to twelve minutes, and, and also the science varies as to when does someone you know succumb to their industry uh, injuries in terms of a drowning where it's fatal versus you know an anoxic brain damage uh, case like this one or Lauren's where you have such deprivation of oxygen that affects the brain but it does not kill you. And it's safe to say, oh, I think I actually read in your closing or your opening transcript that they considered cutting his arm off just to save his life. Am I misremembering that? No, I mean, these these men were just devastated. I mean, they could not figure out what to do. And that officer, I mean, that officer retired from the force. I mean, he had he could not get the image out of Lorenzo's eyes and when his eyes, you know, roll back. Um, and that officer was the one who really saved his life by busting through a pool room, a pool pump room door that was locked to turn off the pump, which finally re- released Lorenzo. But no, they were yelling 
or any gardener nearby if anybody had a machete and they were going to, because they knew he was going to die. Mm. Goodness gracious. It's, that was a horrific scene. Um, Just horrific. Yeah. I think everyone would agree with that. This case, like the trial, our previous guest, Sean Claggett out in Las Vegas prosecuted against an HOA in one of our previous episodes. Um, in that case, a swing set collapsed and, uh, a boy suffered a traumatic brain injury. Um, you know, another combination of products liability and premises liability. Can you explain to us what nuances come into play when you have a property owner who is responsible for a dangerous product on their property who that injures or kills someone? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you've really got to evaluate, you know, you know, your case in terms of everything that we always do as a traveler, you know, where, where's your coverage? Where's the biggest recovery you're going to get for your client? Um, also, which defense is better against the other defendant? And so, you know, obviously here we knew, you know, the case against the apartment complex, you know, was pretty open and shut. I mean, they had a, a missing drain cover. That's their responsibility. You know, the pool maintenance company, and, I, and I've had, you know, 20, 30 cases against pool maintenance companies, they come in and they always say, well, we don't, we're only here to put the chlorine in the water, test the water and get out of here. Well, that's not true. You know, you've, if you're handling these types of cases, you got to really know the codes, the checklist, the model codes, um, you know, all these different things that are really, really important and unique to pools, commercial pools and residential pools. And so we knew that on their, on the inspection checklist was, you got to check if you have a um, a main drain cover. And, and if we think about cleaning a pool, it's it's rather simple. But you know, the main drain draws you know all the water, and the water goes through the filter, and then it comes back in through the the intake pumps. I mean, the output pumps. That's really it's kind of simple, you know, when you think about it. But a main drain is integral to that, and the people that are in charge of cleaning the pool obviously know about that. So their defense didn't make a lot of sense. Stayrite's defense then was going to be that, number one, it's these two's fault. But number two, nobody else in the industry has a cutoff switch. Look at Hayward. Look at Whirlpool. Look at all these other people. No one else has it. So our our most difficult case was against them, but they had the most coverage. And and we knew we could get the biggest recovery from them. So you have to take all that into account. you know. And when products and premises meet, you you have issues such as strict liability. So, for instance, on our strict liability claim, you know, we were arguing that they can't compare the negligence to um, uh, they couldn't fabricate. They couldn't blame the non-parties. But on Mm. our negligence claim, they could. So, you know, what happened there was, you know, they eventually found the two comparative parties 20 percent negligent, a combined 20 percent. I believe it was 10 and 10. Um, Now, that wouldn't apply to our strict liability claim. It would to our uh, it would do our negligence claim, but we already got seven million. So at the end of the day, it was about a thirteen million dollar um, drop from the um, from the ultimate verdict. So all that strategy worked out to have a collectible ninety million dollar or ninety million dollar plus judgment to collect in the case. So you've got to consider all those issues. They and you got and if you don't understand it at the time, you've got to get somebody involved who does because. That can prove all the difference in the world. No, it's extremely nuanced. And the way you did it, you mentioned earlier, is that you actually bifurcated 
this into two different lawsuits. If I remember correctly, you filed one lawsuit first against the apartment and the pool company. And how, how far in litigation did that get before you settled? Yeah, not very far. You know, that was the point. We wanted to file. We wanted to give them, um, you know, any type of subpoena power they wanted or depot power. Mm. Um, and, and because we were just we were of the opinion, let's get this going. Let's do our policy limit demands. If they don't pay and they're in bad faith, well, then we'll bring in stay right. And now we don't care where it lands mm. because we've got two. Now we've got two unlimited policies. So what happened was the apartment complex paid. um and the pool, the pool company paid right away as well. They, the pool company might have taken one or two depots within their policy limit demand. Uh, their defense lawyer is like, okay, I've got 30 days. Let me take some demands. I mean, let me take some depositions. And he did. And they both paid on time. And, uh, and then they were both out, which was great because Lorenzo then could have, you know, by the time we tried the stay right case, Lorenzo had his own house. Mm. Uh, he had full-time LPN, skilled nursing care. So, you know, every he was in good, you know, good shape and had everything he needed by the time we tried the stay right case. So we didn't have to, you know, they had offered, you know, several million dollars um, during the, the trial and we were able to turn it down. One of the reasons was, you know, he had some money in, in, in the bank account taking care of him. That is fascinating. That is really fascinating at this junction between premises and products. And you can the, the product case, it seems like sometimes can be a lot more complicated. The the company is is not just a one-off apartment complex, it's maybe a national, international company where if they settle one, you know, it can it can lead to large ramifications, as you mentioned. And so a strategy you can take, if I'm hearing you correctly, is you know, give the apartment complex the pool company, whoever with the small policy limits, file suit and give them subpoena power so they can get the info they need to tender and your client can survive off of that money and and improve their quality of life. And then you can pursue the products case that may take several years to prosecute. I think that's brilliant. Um, And in your opening statements uh, from the transcript, I noticed that you, and I see this in a a number of your cases, uh, Mike, is that you set up this, and you know, correct me if I'm putting words in your mouth, but you set up this collision course between the plaintiff and the dangerous condition. And I want to read from it real quick. You said, and I quote, in your opening, in, in this case, quote, I want to tell you a story. And the story involves a little boy, and when this little boy met Stay Right Industries and their pool pump. And then in closing, in your closing argument, you stated, when I started out about a week and a half ago, an opening statement, I told you the story about a boy, a boy who was innocently swimming on June 17th, 2000, like boys and girls all across America today. We're in the summer. That's what they're doing out there. I want to keep, I want you to keep that picture on one side, ladies and gentlemen, and think about it. Think about that innocence on one side, because on the other side, in this case, You have a callous, indifferent, and careless corporation which has known about a deadly hazard for 30 years and done nothing about it. This is the other side of that picture, and when those two pictures meet, tragedy occurs. And I love this theme of a collision course, and I'm wondering if you can go into this a little more. Yeah, you know, it, it's it's interesting to hear you read that. It brought back a lot of memories. And, and, and you know, we talked about earlier, like, 
terms of public speaking, like advice I would give lawyers, you know, I said, you can't, you can't be someone else, but what you can do is take nuggets from other people. Hmm. Um, I promise you, I got that collision course <laughs> analogy from another trial lawyer. I, and, and for lack of a better term, and I've heard other you know lawyers say this, I stole it. Uh, and, and, you know, we all steal from each other, and that's what we should be doing. I mean, we're up against an industry, whether it be, I mean, you know, th- this industry, the pool industry, I fought them not only in the Peterson case. I fought them in several other cases. But more importantly, I fought them at CPSC meetings. I went to CPSC meetings, the Consumer Product Safety Commission, mm-hmm. all over the country in the years um, post the Peterson verdict, saying, why aren't we fixing this? Why aren't we putting this um, this pool sw- safety switch on these pumps? And, and was not listened to, was not listened to at all. So, you know, the, when I when you set up that collision course, it is true. I mean, and that's why we have to we have to uh, go to CLEs. We have to steal from each other. You know, call other lawyers, get their ideas, read the transcripts like you did, Landon. Because you know, not only is that incredibly effective, but it's true, and, and it's tr- it was true with the Pinto, the Ford Pintos. It was true with tobacco. Uh, it's true throughout medical negligence, and it darn sure was true in the pool industry that they were trying to cover up. No question about it. And I, I couldn't really kind of say cover up there and everything like that, mm-hmm. but I can set it up because you did have a boy who had no, did nothing wrong, did absolutely nothing wrong, and you had a company that had been doing something wrong for 30 years, and now they meet on this unfortunate day, like you said, almost 20, 30 years ago to the day we sit here doing this podcast. And it could have easily, easily been prevented. It never had to happen. Um and, and I think when you set those things up, at the end of the day, the reason corporations are so scared in insurance companies of a jury trial is because of exactly what you and I talked about in the beginning and why I fell in love with, with being a trial lawyer, and that is juries decide. The corporate boardroom is done. They are not making this decision. And the judges are making this decision. And the legislature is not making this decision Six folks who are, who are being picked through this process are making this decision. And that scares the living you-know-what out of corporations <laughs> because they know they're wrong. Not, not because it's the wrong result will be obtained. They know that they're wrong. And, and you've got to set that up for the jury uh, in the way that meets your case. That can't be a theme in every case. It's not cookie cutter. Um, mm-hmm. I felt it was very true in, in this case and in Hinton because I had – two truly innocent victims. Um, and you don't always have that. So you've got to have different themes. Um, but I'm telling you, if you get a chance to read, you know, you know, whoever it might be, Fred Levin, J.B. Spence, Perry Nichols, you, if you can get a hold of old transcripts or even transcripts today, you know, of, of great trial lawyers, do it because you'll, you'll find some nuggets. Yeah, Todd Michaels comes to mind. He, he's given some really powerful closings. You check out on CVN as well. I'm looking at your verdict form here. I mean, speaking of, you know, speaking truth to power, I'm looking at question eight from the verdict form in this case. It says, what is the amount of any future damages for medical expenses to be sustained in future years? A, total damages over future years. Answer, $100 million. Then, of course, you get to line 9B, future non-economic damages, $68 million. Take us with you. I mean, what is this moment 
I mean, like you said, we're not in the corporate boardroom. We're in an American courtroom in uh, South Florida. Take us with you. What is it like when that those numbers are read out? I mean, what time of day is it? How many people are in the courtroom? If you remember, who do you look to when you hear these numbers? What was the parents' reaction? What was the opposing counsel's reaction? Just take us there with you in that moment, if you don't mind. Yeah, you know what was what was crazy about Peterson is, um, you know, the Hinton case was only six months before, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and so you know when when you know, and so I just tried to catastrophe near drowning case six months before. Here we are again, and literally almost the same verdict is read out. So I, I almost was to the point like, am I am I not hearing this right? I'll never forget. <laughs> I called my wife and I told her. She goes, "What are you What are you talking about?" Like, you know, and um, and you know, so no, it, it it's surreal, and and uh, you know, everyone comes back to mind, and you know, uh, it's interesting. I tell you a little side uh, story is. You know, when I started practicing with my dad, my dad had stopped taking verdicts. Not not a lot of people know this story, but so my dad had gotten the, the biggest verdict in the country for the personal injury case in 1975 in the Greg Stead case, where a, a young man, a high school football player in Miami, was paralyzed in a football game. Hmm. And the top firms in Miami had turned the case down. It's too difficult to sue Rydell. Um and my dad and his two partners at the time took the case. They got a $5.4 million verdict wow. in, in 1975, which you know, today may not sound, you know, uh, like it's going to knock the roof off. But that, that was the biggest verdict in the country. And um, and after that case, my dad didn't take verdicts. He would try cases. He'd let his partners or whoever else take the verdict. He just couldn't take it. He couldn't sit in the courtroom. And um, And so when he and I tried our first case together in 1999, um, he's telling me he's not going to take the verdict. And I'm like, you're out of your mind. I'm like, we are taking the, he goes, son, I don't take verdicts anymore. I don't want to do that. I'll try cases, but I can't be in there. So I made him do it. And it was great because he, he clutched the client's hand so tight. It was an 89 year old Cuban American man who had slipped and fallen, broken a hip, mm. great guy. And so then I grabbed his hand. So that now is the tradition at our firm that whenever we take a verdict at the Haggard Law Firm, both lawyers trying the case hold the client's hand. Wow! And it was it was born out of you know really the the legacy, the uh, the mentor of the whole firm, which is my dad, kind of doing that out of you know just the way trial lawyers are. You you mentioned you know are you scared, are you anxious? You you're a lot of things because it's such a powerful moment when 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 the jury speaks and and um, you know uh, and and. and and I think what happened in Hinton and Peterson, which which the jury understood is, and I say this to all juries, but you know, ju- the jury verdict in Hinton, you know, unfortunately, Lorenzo passed away a couple of years after the verdict. Mm. L- Lauren Hinton is still alive today. Um, 22 years or tw- 23 years after her incident. The, the, the verdict in Hinton by the Hinton jury still lives today. And it will keep living. And and that's exactly what you tell a jury is your verdict's not done today. It's going to live forever with this client and your justice will live with them. And, you know, that's how I think you really talk about future pain and suffering is that, ladies and gentlemen, you, you've got to figure out like what, what's going to be happening in 20 years, what's going to be happening in 25 years. And I think that's why at our firm, we've been very successful in future pain and suffering 
awards because we really get into that. And because you got to, you know, you can't violate the golden rule, but you've got to bring the jury to that pool of Peterson. The mm. past pain and suffering in the Lorenzo Peterson case, that that damage element started in that pool with his terror. And the jury has to understand there and understand that and they have to go there. You can't tell them to go there because you get in trouble, but there's ways to argue that uh, because that's truthfully where the, where the damage instruction takes you. The jury instruction takes you. And same thing in future. So I think when people kind of look at some of those awards and say, well, how can it be 68 million or 70 million future pain and suffering? Well, you think about someone who can't s- swallow for the rest of their life. They can't talk. They're trapped in their body for 24 hours a day mm. for maybe 50, 60 years. And, and you know, what's, you know, and their parents are going to predecease them. Who's going to take care of Lauren when Lori does, her mother? You know, and all that has to be taken care of by this jury. And it's a tremendous weight on a jury. Uh, but one thing I tell every jury, Landon, and I mean this with all my heart, is that your know, juries are incredibly powerful. I mean, like I said, they, they scare the insurance industry. It's pretty powerful. But they're not all powerful. They can't snap their fingers and go back to June 16th of 2000 and make sure Lorenzo doesn't go to that apartment pool the next day. So as powerful as their verdict is, it's not all powerful, but they can do it. If they, if they, if they get together and they follow the evidence and they allow themselves to do these things, they can do it. And I try to always empower juries by telling them, and that's why I'm probably going to cry more than anybody when we move mm-hmm. out of our old courthouse here is, is, you know, juries have done that in that legendary courthouse for, you know, a hundred years. Mm. And they've done it throughout Florida for over a hundred years and juries can do it, but you got to give them the roadmap to do it because it isn't easy, you know, and, and, and I'm not, I'm not even talking about the court reform attitudes or what the defense talking about. I'm just talking about doing your job for the catastrophically injured plaintiff is not easy because you do have to go out there and you've got to think about, you know, Lauren Hinton never walking down that aisle, you know, never getting in that white dress because of what the defendants robbed her of. They've got to, they've got to compensate her for that, you know. And so, it, uh, you know, that's where your emotions come into play. I mean, one thing I don't talk about a lot is, I mean, I tried Lauren Hinton's case. She's the same exact age as my daughter. Hmm. And, uh, and, I mean, every time I was with her, I mean, that really, really hit me. Um, and... Um, and that's something trial lawyers, you have to deal with. I mean, you go to some dark places as being a trial lawyer, some tough places, um, especially when you're representing children and you have children, but you've got to do it, you know, because it's the only way you can do justice for your client. I mean, yeah, as you're saying this, I just I just went to a swim lesson with my 17-month-old son yesterday morning as you're talking about this. If you want, Michael, it definitely comes through that Lauren Hinton – means an awful lot to you. So if you want, let's discuss the Hinton versus 2331 Adam Street Corporation case, the $100 million verdict. Two questions again to start. First, who is Lauren Hinton? And second, if you can take us with you, your clients, to the scene where this horrific tragedy unfolds and tell us Lauren's story. Yeah, so Lauren, who I have pictures of, just like Lorenzo and, and, and so many of my clients, uh, her pictures all over my office. Um, she now resides uh, outside of Atlanta, Georgia. And anytime I get up to Atlanta for a deposition, a conference, 
or really anything, I, I, I try to run by and see her and her mom, uh, Lori. Um, Lauren was living in Hollywood, Florida. Uh, her parents were Lonnie and um, uh, Lonnie and Lori Hinton, and um, she had a big a big brother that I that I always called Bubba. Uh, he was Lonnie Jr. He was about three years older than his baby sister. She was two years and ten months when this tragedy happened. And again, you know, a, a summer day, a late spring day, if I remember. Um, and uh, they lived in an apartment complex where a bunch of kids had a gated pool. Um, her dad was down cooking at the community grill with a number of parents. He's cooking hamburgers and hot dogs. And uh, his two kids were with some other kids were playing hide-and-go-seek in the common areas down by where uh, the grill was. So Lonnie said to some of the neighbors, hey, you got him," And he took up his tray of food uh, up to the second floor apartment complex where the family lived. And he took the food into his wife. Then he went down to try to find, to go get the kids and he could not find Lauren. Mm -hmm. uh, her brother didn't know where she was. Uh, they panicked. They looked in the parking lot. They looked in the hallways. They looked in the bushes around the grill. And then they heard screaming uh, as a neighbor screamed as he went, jumped in the pool and uh, found Lauren floating in the pool, and she had been submerged uh, for some time, and they pulled her up to the pool deck, um, resuscitated her. Uh, Lonnie, Lori, uh, Lonnie Jr. were all there watching this horrific scene, oh. and she went to the uh, went by ambulance to Joe DiMaggio Hospital. It was diagnosed with a terrible, um, irreversible brain damage of, again, an anoxic brain injury with the lack of oxygen to her brain due to her submersion injury. Um, and what we had discovered is that um, that pool gate, uh, which by the Hollywood code uh, and by all standard codes needed to be self-closing and self-latching. And in fact, it had been broken and open for several months. Wow. Uh, and as they were playing hide and go seek, Lauren went to hide in the pool there was a kitty slide that was uh, in the pool area. I'll never forget it. it was a yellow and green slide, and her little shoes were found right next to it. Oh, um, and uh, I, there's no video of the incident. A, a neighbor who was upstairs saw the body in the pool, thought it was a body, and ran down and jumped in. And um, so the case was against the apartment complex for. Uh, their absolute negligence and not maintaining that pool gate. Mm. Were they the only defendant in this case? They were. And, and, and what was interesting about that case is that um, there was a million dollar policy. And uh, so we demanded the $1 million policy. We gave them 30 days. We, Lauren was still uh, hospitalized at Joe DiMaggio. And we um, we actually got a neurologist to do a, a short report. Uh, even though she was inpatient, we got all her inpatient records, sent them all to Lloyd's of London, and they did not pay. And then the second district court of appeal came down with a opinion during the pendency of the demand, saying, uh, "And I won't bore you. It was a case called Burgess. It's, it was reversed shortly thereafter." Mm. 
saying that when you don't have a guardianship set up or an estate set up, that there's nobody to release. So a bad faith case, a demand, you can't settle a case without that. Hmm. So I had to consult with a lawyer uh, who handles our our bad faith cases, and uh, Fred Cunningham, who a lot of people know around the state, uh, one of the best bad faith lawyers in the state. Hmm. And he said, you got to do the demand again. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. I got to give this company another chance. I already gave them one chance. We had to give them another chance due to that opinion, which was temporary. And Lloyds of London then again did not pay, paid late, uh, and did not tender the money to us. At that point in time, we had a viable bad faith case. And so we went forward uh, with trial uh, later on that year in that case. Wow. Looking at the transcripts, you had a lot of co-resident tenant witnesses in this case. For me and for those listening, what is your strategy just generally for working up drowning cases, but also just premises cases in general? I think I've heard you, I've been you know researching you and other podcasts you've done that you I think you say attack the premises. Is that right? Can you go into that concept a little bit and how you think about working up premises cases? Yeah, sure. That's a it's an old saying I've probably been using my whole career is that, you know, in a premise liability case, you got to know the premises better than the defendant. If you don't, you're not doing your client justice. So the minute you get a premises case, if I get a call when we get off this podcast and God forbid there's a drowning or a a negligent security case, or any type of thing that happens at any premises, I've got to be there this afternoon. Um, I've got to have an investigator who I've worked with a thousand times before that knows exactly what we need and what I want in this particular case. And and what we use a word to, uh, called canvas. We, we will go canvas and talk to every resident there about whatever the issue might be. We talk to every former resident. We we talk to every former manager, assistant manager, former maintenance person, anybody that you can so that you know everything about that incident, more so than the police investigating it, the defendant, the defense lawyer, or any investigator on the other side. And if you don't do that, when you have the first opportunity to work on a case, my view, you're committing malpractice. I mean, mm-hmm. I, you know, you know, that may be a high standard, but, you know, it's been the standard for a long time. And you just have to do it, especially in a catastrophic case or a wrongful death case. It's too important to the family. And um, and so, you know, in the Hinton case in particular, you know, the, there were there were a couple of big issues. One is, how long was this pool gate broken? Who knew about it? Um, were there complaints about it? Did people complain to management? There's a system manager that lives there. Did he know about it? That's one of the issues. The second and, and maybe more important issue is, in all child drowning cases, the immediate defense is blame the parents. Hmm. Blame the custodians. The parents are supposed to watch their children and everything along those lines. So, you know, you've got to find out the exact story of how long the child was outside the view of the parents. And, and I, I always say this, that, you, you know, if there's going to be negligence on a parent, it's going to be from the time that the last time they saw their child to when they started looking for their child, hmm. not not when they found their child. You're not negligent by looking in a parking lot. You're looking at one risk. You can't you can't look at all risk at once. I've had several drowning cases 
where a parent made the simple mistake of looking in the wrong place. Well, getting kidnapped, getting hit by a car, get, you know, that's just as dangerous as being in a pool. And, and so as long as you're looking, if you have a parent who's sitting on the couch drinking 12 beers, you got a real problem. Uh, they're not watching their child. But here, the defense argued that Lonnie negligently went up to the second floor, that he left Lauren down there in the company of her six-year-old brother, and that was negligent. Well, he, several parent, several other adults were there, and he simply said, you got him, and he went up there. Now, one nuance we fought in this case was the defense wanted to fabre, again, blame every non-party they could, every other adult there, saying you were you had the custody and control of Lauren. And we fought that because no one admitted that. No one said I was supposed to watch him. You know, um, and so we, we had some nuances there, which, you know, trial lawyers need to know. They need to know the law. And if, if Lonnie never transfers the custodial responsibility of watching his child to another person, that person can't go on the verdict form. Hmm. But I can still argue that it may have been a miscommunication, but that's what he expected because he said, you got him. And so that was a little nuance in that case um, in terms of were we going to get a Fabre, a non-party babysitter, if you will, getting a percentage of fault, or was it going to be the parents, if at all? And that really boiled down to being the entire case. We were able to establish through witnesses, through the apartment manager's testimony, through everything, that the pool gate was broken, the pool gate violated the Hollywood Code. Um, you know, they used some defenses that apartment complexes, others always do, that, hey, the health inspector certified the pool. But the problem was the state health inspector doesn't check for gates back at that time. Thank God they do now because of Lauren's case. We were able to change the law in the state of Florida that the pool inspector now does check the gate twice a year. It's not enough. It should be once every month, in my opinion, but, you know, we're dealing with the state legislature. <laughs> so, um, you know, but but we knew we knew what everybody was going to say. It's interesting when you read the transcripts, because I reread them, you know, the defense was saying, oh, you know, they went out and found a witness. We had known about that witness for two years. You know, she just wasn't a great witness for us. Um, so you've got to know it all. You cannot be surprised in these cases. That's just unacceptable in terms of knowing the premises and everything like that. So you will go out to the apartment complex where the injury occurred and literally knock on doors and ask tenants, um, co-residents what they know. How do you – sometimes folks just don't want to be involved in with lawyers, with litigation. They just – you know their fear of being involved in the process overcomes their desire to see justice done. And I don't want to judge. I don't think that's always the case, but how do you encourage non-party folks to step up and, and be witnesses in cases like this? Or do you not have that problem? No, no, I a hundred percent have that problem. And I, and I believe to some degree it's gotten a little worse, uh, you know, with time. Um, but it's a great point, and, and it's something that I always tell my lawyers. I, I don't want to hear that an investigator uh, can't get people to talk to them. Um, I'm, I'm very strong about the lawyer should be out there. Um, you know, when you work at a trial firm like mine, you're, you're typically not writing antitrust briefs that take three months to work on. And, and, you know, you're not doing mergers and acquisitions. You're a street lawyer. 
You need to be able to talk to jurors and you need to be able to talk to witnesses, not to mention your clients. And so you've got to be very influential with these witnesses. You know, much like you were talking about, you know, when I majored in communications, I mean, you know, if you're a real trial lawyer, you better be able to talk to a federal judge and be able to talk to a witness in apartment 112 in Liberty City in the same day. Mm. If you can't do that, this isn't for you. Wow. And and you're right. Sometimes you're going to run across people that just will not be involved no matter what and everything like that. The only thing that usually happens there is, well, they're not going to be involved for either side. But I'll tell you what, you better keep checking on that because they might be involved later on. They might soften up. Um, but the way I try to get them involved in, if I think they have really good information for us, you know, I am going to talk to them about my client's injuries. Mm. I am going to talk to them about general safety. I am going to talk to them about, you know, look, that pool gate, you know, that could be your child. That could be another child. You know, now I want them to tell the truth and I want them to tell, you know, what they know. But I don't want someone to be shy because they think that they're going to be in a trial on the stand for five days because we all know that's not the case. I mean, probably 50 percent of the time they're only going to give me a statement. Maybe another 45 percent of the time they might give a deposition and only five percent of the time ever. Are they going to testify a trial? And in a before and after witness like that, it might be an hour or, or, or a lay witness like that, you know, in terms of the premises. So, you know, we're, we're very, very aggressive with that because I, I think, you know, look, I, I think it's the citizen's obligation to tell the truth when they witness something that important. And, um, and there's different ways you've got to use your personality. You've got to use different tones, different tactics. You've got to know what the ethical rules are. Um, you know, you can't tell them not to talk to anybody else. You can't you know, do anything like that. I mean, I could tell you, like, going back to the Peterson case for a second, I kept in touch with Tony Boudreau and his mother for three years, hmm. or however long it was. He was not deposed. And then finally, he was he was playing, um, he was up in Georgia playing high school football. And I went up for two days because of his football practice at school. I couldn't get him deposed by videotape. And, and, you know, had to work around my pre-depot conferences with them to finally get them videoed for an hour deposition that was shown in trial. Spent two days in North Georgia in a small town. And you got to do that in cases like this. And that's what we did in Hinton with all those different witnesses. Yeah, and I want to grow in this area. So I want to dive in just a little bit further. When you go knock on apartment 112 and you get some great testimony, for example, or someone's a great witness says, yeah, I saw the gate been busted for years. I've told the apartment manager 10 times he's a jerk, et cetera. Do you just say, okay, great. Have your phone number, your name, and then you, you walk away or do you want to get an affidavit or do you want to take out your iPhone or Android and record a statement? What's the key takeaway that you want when you do find an amazing fact witness? Yeah, I think if you have somebody saying that, you know, you know, basically what I call the hundred percenter, I would get it in affidavit or or video it right then and there, uh, because you always want to have that. You know, you can use that for various purposes. You know, sometimes if it's real nuance, you want to be careful about taking a state a long statement because you know they might say some things that could hurt you, and you don't want to be eliciting that. You know, because if it ever becomes discover- discoverable, now you got to turn it over. And it may have that problem in there. Um, so you've got to, like, I, I usually want to take, if I've got 100% or I want the 100% in, they an 80% or I may not ask about the other 20%. You know, now the defense always might if they're on the stand or later on. 
and that's fine. That that is what it is. That's what. <coughs> excuse me. That's what cross examination is all about. So you got to play it by ear. But I would get the statement because you never know. Nowadays, people are very transient. They move around. You may lose track of them. So if you've got a really good statement, take it then and there, so you have it. So if if you can. Michael, can you walk us through this trial from the beginning? Were there in, any interesting moments or themes in jury selection? Yeah, and, and you know, in Hinton, you know, the 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 major issue was going to be parental supervision, and uh, you know, I'll never forget. Uh, and we've tried a bunch of drowning cases with parental supervision. Uh, one of the issues was obviously, do you watch your kids? What do you think if somebody if their child their child Two years and 10 months is out of their sight. And we had a juror who said, my my kids are within my sight 24 hours a day, seven days a week. There's absolutely no excuse for that. And that's bad parenting. And before we could go on to another juror, one of the jurors said, raise her hand. And said, yes, Mrs. Jones. Turned to that juror, said that comment, said, where are your kids now? <laughs> Because this is 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I'm wondering where your kids are now. And I mean, an absolute fireside debate started right then and there. Wow. 30 jurors going at it. And, you know, I think a lot of time plaintiff's lawyers are scared of the bad issues in their case. And they don't want that fight because now what it really does is it now – it involves a lot more work that you've got to do. You've got to get those bad jurors out. And, you know, I we all know that. We all go to all these Vladar seminars. But I, I really believe that a lot of plaintiffs are scared of their bad facts. And you can't be. You've got to attack them. And that was the issue. And um, so we were able to really flush that out, I think, to the a point the best we could and get the jurors off. And that – that was the key to the case. I mean, that was what it was going to be all about. It was going to be 100%, you know, on dad or some percentage or or zero, and that was the battle. And so Vladar in that case and in all those cases is incredibly important because parental supervision is the elephant in the room. Did anything else stand out to you in, in openings or in your case in chief? Yeah, you know, I mean, it, you know, it, it was we had we had a one issue is do, do we try uh, called the aquatics expert. You know, we had this admission of a of a uh, gate being broken. So the the main reason we called the aquatics expert was again to explain kind of the whole purpose of why do you have a pool gate? Why do you have self latching and self closing gates? And the whole reason is because of what we call a lapse of parental supervision. What that means is we know kids get away from their parents. We know it. It's going to happen. That's the sole purpose in the free world of a pool gate because we know the kids are going to get away. So we did call the aquatics expert and it did really well. Um, and then, you know, it, it you know, the one thing that's happened in all three of my $100 million uh, verdicts and also a $21 million verdict I've had. So probably the top four verdicts I've ever had have one issue in common. And that is, in each case, the defense, because there were catastrophic injury cases, called what we call life uh, life expectancy experts on the other side. To say that Lauren Hinton will die early because of her catastrophic injuries, as would Lorenzo Peterson, as would Sammy Brock, 
as would Alicia Bustos. Uh, and therefore, the life care plans that we introduced to the jury would not be as big because they wouldn't be alive. And in each one of those cases, I can tell you that the venom that I came back with them on that through the through the the investigation we had done, the research we had done, the cross examinations, the themes, I would be shocked if those cases were tried without that issue. If the verdicts would have been as big, now maybe they would have been eighty percent as big or something like that. Uh, we've had questions in cases, including Hinton, where a, a juror asked, "Would you give up on your child wow. to the doctor, the defense doctor?" Now, obviously, the judge couldn't read that question. But, you know, sometimes insurance companies can't help themselves. They don't want a $50 million life care plan, a $30 million life care plan going to a jury without it being contested. So sometimes they'll contest it in this way. The last, the last thing I'll tell you, which always has stood out to me in the Hinton case, is um, we had a very young juror on, on that case. He was 18 years old. Um, I mean, literally just, you know, registered to vote. Becomes a eligible for jury duty, gets called. I'll never forget he came in to the courtroom for veneer, uh, for jury selection, um, with a uh, backwards baseball hat on. Judge told him to take his hat off. Our jury consultant at the time told my dad and I, who tried the, my dad and I tried that case together, said, I don't like him. Uh, he's not going to understand damages. He's not going to understand what this kid has to go through the rest of their life. I was only 33 at the time. Actually, I guess technically with, with Hinton, I was 32. And I'm like, I like this kid. There's something about him. I'm the youngest lawyer in the courtroom. I like the dynamic. And I did like an alternate that we were going to get. And so I'm like, I, I, I want that kid on the jury. Hmm. And what we learned is the fourth person called my dad and I probably two days after the verdict. And, you know, we were very thankful. You know, she was asking how Lauren was doing, you know. And we said, thank you very much. We're about to hang up the call. She goes, well, you don't need to thank me. And we said, what do you mean? And she said, well, you know the young guy? And we're like, yeah. Said, uh, one of the jurors wanted to put 50% on the dad for comparative negligence. And the young guy said, nope, it's zero. And so we started debating between zero and 50. And the young guy, let, let, me, let me let everybody understand something. I don't have a job. I got nowhere to go. I'll sit here for six months and there's no way we're putting that much on dad. And they ended up putting 1% on dad. Wow. And, you know, so that juror, I mean, that's a, that's a 25, $50 million decision. And, you know, that, that's where pressure comes. I mean, you want to be a, a trial lawyer, you want to be a plaintiff trial lawyer handling catastrophic cases. You better understand pressure. And, um, and, and, you know, and it also, it took the guts of, you know, my dad and I saying, you know, we're not going with the jury consultant. And, um, and so I've always thought that story was amazing. And, and something I tell every juror, every jury in closing is, and you probably saw that in that closing, if you really believe in something, fight for it, because this case is that important. Fight for it. There's nothing wrong with that debate. Stick to your guns, fight for it. And I don't know if that had influence on that that young kid at the time, uh, but Lord knows. I mean, I'm gonna tell you. I mean, you're talking twenty something years later, and his decisions has helped. Uh, you know, Lauren uh, live the most comfortable life she can. So, 
that stuff is really important when you dial down into the very intricacies of, of uh, jury trial like that. Sure. And we focus a lot on the day of trial. And I know you have a connection with your clients. You have photos of them in your office. You go see Lauren and, and her mom up in Atlanta when you're when you're in the area. What help us understand? I mean, this is a hundred million dollars, this verdict. I mean, this is in in 2003, and we know what inflation's done recently. So what has this money done for Lauren? Oh, it's it's unbelievable. I mean, you know, you look at the cuts that the government has done to Medicaid and Medicare and nursing. I mean, I, I could have a similar injury to Lauren or Lorenzo today. They'll get four hours of nursing if they're lucky. Mm. Back when Lauren and, and, and Lorenzo uh, were injured, they originally had 12 hours of nursing, which makes a big deal. Now Lauren has a permanent 24-hour skilled nurse, mm. someone that 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 can do everything for them. She has a new wheelchair every year. She has a, a very, very comfortable house that's handicapped accessible. Lori has a handicapped van that is kept up, kept up to date. Um, and that's why she is, you know, here, you know, 23 years later, it breaks my heart. Lorenzo, um, you know, just, just a, a, had a terrible infection mm-hmm. and, you know, and, and, and that can happen, mm-hmm. you know, but it's less likely to happen. You know, Lauren, Sammy, uh, both are around. I talk to Sammy Brock all the time because of the money that, has has uh, impacted his life, and, and not to mention all the case, other cases we've had, and cases that we resolve all the time, where you can make this money go longer with proper planning. But it's everything you're changing someone's life. I mean, a quick story, real quick. We haven't talked much about Sammy Barack, but he was in Tunisia when that verdict in 2007 came down, 102 million dollars. One of the greatest moments of my career. We, we flew ENTs from Paris to Tunisia to operate on because he had a tracheal tube. He had a tracheal tube still in his neck. Three and a half years later, the same tube from when he left Jackson Memorial Hospital and went to Tunisia. Mm. No one could change it in Tunisia. We sent two ENTs from Paris after the verdict to, to try to help them. They couldn't figure it out. We airlifted him from Tunisia to Miami. We greeted him at the private airport. Oh my God. We brought him by ambulance to JMH. Within 35 minutes, at JMH, he had a new tray kill tube. Wow. His old one was tied together by fishing line. So I tell I tell people when they handle these cases, I'm like, let me tell you something. You talk about life and death. Have we lost the Barack case? Sammy would have died. No question about it. Mm. Same thing with Lauren. You know, same thing with Lorenzo. Lorenzo lived several years after the verdict. And so those type of cases, when you handle these cases, I always talk about, you know, the, the responsibility you have, but it's the pressure too. And and you got to know how to balance that pressure because you're not going to win every case. Mm-hmm. So it's not going to happen. So you've got to be able to handle that pressure because the responsibility that comes with these cases is immense. Um, you know, so, uh, but, but you can have moments like that, that change your life forever. Yeah. Yeah. Everything happens for a reason. That's, that's an incredible story. I, I'm so encouraged. <laughs> the links that you went through to help Mr. Barack. A question we ask all of our guests is, how have both of these cases made the community safer, Michael? Well, Lorenzo's, you know, Lorenzo was one of the starts to the Virginia Graham Baker Act. Um, 
you know, unfortunately, after Lorenzo, I handled several more entrapment cases. And as as I've told you, I I ran around battling the pool industry by myself, really, you know, with a couple other folks. And then Virginia Graham Baker, uh, who's a young girl uh, in um, Alexandria, Virginia, happened to be the granddaughter of former Secretary of State uh, James Baker. She died on a whirlpool, same pump, same pump that. Uh, caused a terrible brain injury to Lorenzo, took Grammy's life. Mm. And the lawyers up in Virginia that were hired by the Baker family brought me into that case. And we were able to resolve that case, but more importantly out of that, um, you know, I, I got to meet the former secretary and and I pledged him. I said, you're the only way we can stop this problem. I can't, I, I haven't been able to do it. Mm-hmm. And obviously he was critical to getting uh, George W. Bush elected as president. Um, and within eight months, we were able to pass the Virginia Graham Baker law that has literally prevented entrapment in the United States of America in the last over 10 years. Wow. And um, so, you know, and, and it's named after Grammy, but, you know, Valerie Lakey, Lorenzo Peterson, I can name so many others, unfortunately, that that they were a part of that legacy to make that happen. Um and uh, and then in Hinton, you know, we were able to get the pool inspection forms changed in Florida. We've been able to get the uniform code changed in Florida uh, and in other states. Uh, but we're not where we need to be. We're not where we are with DGB and, and pool entrapment, and we need to get there. Uh, and we're working on that all the time. I work with Debbie Wasserman Schultz on pool legislation federally all the time. I work with, on both sides of the aisle. Um, and uh, And so... Um, those two cases have saved. The one thing I always tell families is you don't know this, but by your actions, kids' lives are saved every day. I mean, right now as we're talking, Lyndon, there's a kid swimming in a pool that's pulling on a, a drain cover. Mm-hmm. They can't get it up. They can't get it up. There's a kid at a fence somewhere in the state of Florida trying to get in. They can't get in because that fence has been changed because of these cases. Now, we'll never know that. We're not going to get a story about that. That's not going to be on the news. Thank God those kids aren't going to suffer tragedy. But these cases and others like them have saved lives. And that's why these families are heroes for bringing these cases. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's almost the stories that don't make the news are are so important as well. Because they've, they're have they not making the news because of the, the brave actions of the families who, who fought back. Um, and the lawyers that help them like you. Well... Michael, thank you so much um, for for coming on the show today. I, I so enjoyed speaking with you. Um, how can people reach you if they wanna if they wanna contact you and, and discuss cases or just you know meet you in general? Yeah, absolutely. My email is uh, m a h at haggardlawfirm That's two G's. And my cell phone anytime is seven eight six. 506-9946. And I tell folks, you know, just like I stole that that closing you talked about earlier from someone, um, call anytime. We're we're we are all about helping lawyers become you know the gladiators they need to be to, to fight for change and fight for good and, and we're willing to share anything we've learned along the way. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of On Premises. In my opinion, Michael Haggard is such a convicted and influential person. To me, it seems like Michael doesn't just handle cases. He fights for causes he believes in. It seems to me like Michael genuinely cares about righting these wrongs. 
the best he can. And he's willing to fight for a safer community through obtaining record-breaking verdicts in the courtroom and through influencing legislation and change at the local, state, and federal level. A brief three-point outline from today's episode in terms of lawyering skills. Number one, you've got to be yourself. Like Michael mentioned, when it comes to speaking to juries, you have to find your true voice. How do you naturally speak to folks when you're talking about something important, whether it involves humor, whether it doesn't? How do you naturally speak to people about serious, important topics? Number two, attack the premises. When a new client with a premises liability case comes into your office, you should immediately go out and visit the property, knock on doors, interview witnesses, and learn that property better than anybody else. As Michael said, you've got to be a street lawyer or someone who's comfortable talking to anyone. You need to be able to argue a motion before a federal judge in the morning and then speak to the witness resident in apartment 112 in the afternoon. Finally, number three, ingrain yourself in the case type and the communities you really care about. Michael speaks at industry events. He spoke before the Consumer Product Safety Commission about dangerous pool pumps. He traveled to other states to speak with lawyers about their pool pump cases. He worked with Congress to help pass the Virginia Graham Baker Pool and Spa Safety Act. When Michael picks a cause he believes is just, he doesn't just scratch the surface. To me, it seems like he goes all in, and the results, in my opinion, speak for themselves. Thank you again so much for listening. Please subscribe to the podcast, catch our next episode, and text me at 850-777-9504 if you have any feedback or suggestions. And remember, don't just read about it in the newspapers, online, or in the pleadings. Come with us on Premises.